This message marks for us the beginning of a new series. We'll be looking over the next couple weeks together at the Lord's Prayer. So as we begin, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, as we begin our three-week study called the Lord's Prayer. In this study, we'll be examining closely week by week the different elements of the Lord's Prayer and what it teaches us as Christians for life. It has been said that the Sermon on the Mount, the collections of teachings and sayings found in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7 are the symptoms, the signs and examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin and death and the devil. And with that being true, here in the midst, in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, is a teaching on prayer. And not just a teaching about prayer or a teaching of principles about praying, but we have in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, in the heart of Jesus' most focused and poignant teaching, a pattern, a template for prayer. And in that template for prayer, we get a glimpse into Jesus' inner life, into Jesus' inner longings, which become our life, which ought to become our longings. And so this passage here in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount becomes one worth studying, one worth living out, one worth repeating over and over again as the early church has from the very beginning. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going to take each of these phrases and try to unpack them and understand more deeply what the words of Jesus prayed in the Sermon on the Mount, prayed in this model template prayer, mean for us. And even more importantly, if this is what Jesus is praying, how can we make this what we are living? And so we begin today with Matthew chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 5 as we make our way to the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up with a couple of siblings, or maybe you've had a couple children of your own, you know how easily it is to mix up kids' names, don't you? It can happen so fast. I was the third child in our family, and so it was not uncommon for me to be called Jordan, Andrew, Trevor, whoever you are, go get that. And I can't tell you how many times I've already called our newest-born daughter by the name of our first-born daughter. It's so easy to mix the names up of those you love, the people in your closest circle of community. In fact, recent studies show that the most likely next step for families is to throw in the family dog. Apparently, some kids are out there getting called by their dog's name. Maybe that's one of the benefits of not having a family dog. I'm not calling my children by its name. You know, the ancient pagans had so many names stacking up for their gods that they could barely keep them straight themselves. In fact, Jesus had that in mind when he began speaking in Matthew 6 about prayer. The Gentiles had so many names piling up of their gods that they couldn't even keep them straight. They didn't even always know which one needed to be satisfied for which cause. And so when they would pray, for example, they would get up and begin these illustrious, elaborate, and striking prayers in which they would call on the names of, of well, whatever your name is, whatever name you want to have, God. 
And the names would start piling up as they reached here and there, trying to figure out which God they needed to placate for this cause or that one, and which God's name they needed to use for this or that. For example, the Roman poet Catalyst wrote a poem about the goddess Diana. And the fourth line of his poem about the goddess Diana says, Take whatever sacred name pleases you. Be a sweet help to the people of Rome as you have been of old. Just take whatever sacred name pleases you, he says. It's the pagan equivalent of saying, whoever you are, just do what we need done. That's why Jesus, in his observation about Gentile prayer, starts by saying, don't keep on babbling like the pagans do. And so he says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. That's how Jesus introduces this template, this model prayer, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. By saying first that we shouldn't go on babbling like the pagans do, it turns out that a short prayer is a pretty good prayer. The pagans, Jesus say, use their many words and babble on and on, trying to please whatever God it is they're calling upon. But Jesus says you can be focused and intent on praying to the one true God. The pagans believe that if they're long-winded or pray long enough, or if they show enough sincerity in their prayers by going on and on, then God will hear them. But Jesus wants to push that Gentile anxiety and prayer aside and, and say, look, the goodness and love of God is right in front of you. And you can call God Father because of his loving care for you. Contrary to all the, the pagans out there who are trying to figure out who God is, Jesus knows the Father. And the Father knows our needs even before we ask of them. And so Jesus is concerned not with getting God's attention or satisfying God with enough words or proving the sincerity of his words by going on and on and babbling and drawing attention and doing it in front of other people. But instead, there is this focused, short, meaningful prayer in which Jesus invites us into his life and the understanding of his own vocation in order to have one aim and one purpose, the exaltation of God himself, the kingdom of God itself. And so as we look at these words, we'll be invited into Jesus' own task, his own ministry. And we're called like the disciples to hear these words and to make them our own, both in prayer and in living. And so Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 9, This then is how you should pray. Saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so the prayer begins with those little words, Our Father in heaven. In the Aramaic, which Jesus would have spoke, or the Greek, in which we first find these texts, the actual first word of Jesus' model prayer is not our, but Father. Because the descriptive word comes second. The first word of Jesus' prayer for us is Abba, is the word Father. In fact, we might translate that most literally, Father of us. And so we begin in this series by asking ourselves, what does it mean to call God Father? You know, every single time that Jesus prays, every recorded prayer that we have of Jesus, he begins in this way, by calling upon God as Father. In every single one of his prayers, with the exception of his a cry of dear election from the cross in which he begins, my God, my God, all the other prayers start with Father. And so there's some great and profound meaning to that. And it's meaning for us in, in a way that we might also model and pray as we pray. Throughout history, there have been a number of different interpretations of what it means for Jesus to call God Father. The first speaks in this Our Father about relationship. Historically, many scholars have pointed out that Jesus uses the word Abba to talk about God, to address God as Abba. And they, they looked back to that word and said, this is the same word that children would have used for their parental father. And, and even suggested that it wasn't used very often in other places in Jewish culture or in the Greek-speaking world. So it's often been noted, rightly so, that this is an intimate and relational term that draws us to an intimate and relational God. Some scholars even suggested early on that this term would have been more like referring to God as daddy, this sort of intimate familial word for, for a father, not distant or formal, but personal and, and connected, as if Jesus says, pray like this, and then begins with daddy. And there's some truth to that. There's certainly still a relational element to this word, but the scholarship more or less over the last hundred years has turned away from that and, and begun to see where calling God Father was not that unique, really, in the Jewish tradition. In fact, other Jewish prayers include it. And so maybe it was overstated for a bit, and maybe you've heard it spoken that way, that Jesus was that personal or using that kind of familial language. It's certainly about relationship and about connectedness and about addressing a God we know and who longs to have a relationship with us. But beyond relationship, there's even more going on when Jesus addresses God as Father. Like so many New Testament texts, we simply cannot understand all that is behind these words unless we take them in the context of the whole Bible, in all of Scripture, the whole history of God's people. That's why it's so important that we understand all of Scripture, that we read and comprehend the Old Testament story and how those themes are being pulled on by New Testament writers, especially in a Jewish audience, as Jesus speaks these words in the Sermon on the Mount in this model prayer. So take, for example, this word, Father. What is Jesus drawing on 
when he calls God Father. Now, the first occurrence in the Hebrew Bible of the idea of God as Father comes when Moses marches in boldly to stand before Pharaoh. It happens in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4, 21, the Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. Here is God in the Old Testament speaking to Pharaoh and holding out hope for his people that these slaves in Egypt would soon no longer be called slaves, but be called sons. That Israel could call God their father was to hold out for them a hope, a hope of freedom and liberty that would come when they were rescued out from under Pharaoh's firm grasp. And so N.T. Wright reminds us that when Jesus tells his disciples to call God Father, those with ears to hear will understand this, that he wants them to get ready for the new exodus. And like them, we are going to be free at last. That's the hope of Jesus' prayer, the hope of the coming of the kingdom of God that he will mention. That the, the grip of the tyrant, the grip of evil and sin and death is going to be broken and we will be free. And so the very first word of the Lord's Prayer in Greek or Aramaic contains in it this hope, not just of intimacy with Daddy or with Father or with Abba. No, it contains in it the words of revolution and of rescue, not just of being familiar in relationship with this God, but being familiar with this God because of his hope. And so to call God Father, which is the first thing each one of us does in the moment of salvation, in the moment that we become Christians, we become God's children. We say to him, our Father. The moment that happens, we're not just saying that we now have a deep and connected, familiar relationship with God, but that we have become a part of this people, a people of promise and a people of hope and of rescue, of a new exodus and a new kingdom that's breaking in. And so to call God Father for Israel was revolutionary. And so it should be for us too. And that's not the only example. Think about the promises that God made to King David. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. When God promises David that from his family would come a child who would rule over God's people and whose kingdom would never be shaken. And of that coming king, God says, He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel 7:14, I will be his father, and he will be my son. The promise of God's future kingdom was wrapped up in the one who would call God Father. And so the Jewish people, as we know, lived with this messianic hope. 
that an exodus would finally come, and that even though they'd suffered under all of these empires, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, Egypt, Syria, now Rome, they wondered when would this end, but they knew because they celebrated it in the Passover, and they sung it in the Psalms that someday freedom would come for them. And it would come when God gave them a new and final exodus. And they knew that was going to come through a Messiah. And when Jesus begins his model prayer by calling God Father, all of that history is contained in this word. And he is saying, all of that promise is contained in me. My life, my purpose, my work is about those things. Freedom from captivity, rescue from the slavery of sin, redemption, deliverance. And so, as one commentator puts it, saying our Father isn't just the boldness, the the audacity of walking into the presence of the living and almighty God and saying, hi, Dad. No, it's the boldness, the sheer total risk of saying quietly, please, May I too be considered an apprentice son. And this was the calling of an ancient child, to sit at the feet of the parent and to learn how life ought to be lived. And so Jesus calls God Father and places himself before God and says, Your kingdom work is now my kingdom work. Teach me how work ought to be done. I am an apprentice of you. And we become disciples, apprentices of Jesus and follow him as he follows the Father. And so we too become sons and daughters of God, a part of this family of God, the body of Christ, as is later called. And so we join Jesus in beginning our prayers and our lives by using this term for God, this intimate relational term, Father, that brings together at least two different attributes of God, both his intimate love for his children but also his sovereign power in history. And that sovereign power is even further brought to light as Jesus says, our Father who is in heaven, reminding us that God is both intimately related to us, has made himself known and comes to us as a loving parent, but is also the sovereign Lord of the universe, so utterly beyond us and beyond our power. And so all the rest of this prayer will rely on God's power from above coming down and received by us and not the work of our own hands or some kingdom that we could bring by our own might, but God's glory alone, a Father who is in heaven. And so once these terms of address have been made, our Father who is in heaven, God has been properly addressed and located, we get in this prayer what are generally called six different petitions. First, there are three you petitions, followed by three we petitions. We'll walk through each of those over the next couple weeks, but the first three you petitions are seen pretty clearly. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, followed by the three us petitions or we petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. 
And for today, we'll take only that first you petition as we begin our study of this prayer. Hallowed be your name. The name of God is to be revered, to be sanctified, to be lifted up. That, in reality, is what this word hallow means. I don't know if that's a word that you use very often. It's certainly not in my vocabulary as I speak throughout daily life to go around hallowing things or asking others to hallow something. But it comes from the Greek word which literally means to honor or sanctify or or set apart, to treat something with the highest respect. The name Yahweh was sometimes called the, the tetragrammaton, the holy four letters that the Jewish people used for God, was so sensitive to Jewish people that they wrote it as unpronounceable. It derives really from God's conversation with Moses in Exodus chapter 3 that I am what I am or I will be what I will be. And nothing in the Old Testament really prohibits people from pronouncing that sacred name, but they were restricted from misusing it. Even the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 says to be careful with the way that we use God's name, right? That we're never taking God's name in vain, to never use it inappropriately. So the Lord's Prayer usually suggests that Jesus joined his fellow Jews in not even uttering the sacred name, Yahweh of God. And here, this request to hallow God's name comes at the first of our you petitions. In other words, Jesus is asking God to do some things. And so actually, these first couple requests are not what Jesus is asking himself or others to do or us to do, but it's about what God might do. And so Jesus is asking God to honor God's name. He wants God to allow God's rule and act to be well known throughout the world, joining with that Old Testament tradition of all things being done so that the name of the Lord would be praised or so that the whole world would know that Yahweh has a mighty hand. And so really at the heart of this first petition is is a request, a petition for God to act, for God himself to make his name known, revered, treated with the utmost respect, honored in all ways. And so we see Jesus, even at the very beginning of this template for prayer, placing himself within Israel's history of knowing God as a father who would rescue his children. And he locates God there in the heavenly realms and prays that God would act to make his name known. And these simple beginnings are a great model for us too, to become people who call our and consider ourselves to be children of God, to know him as father, as the one who will rescue and save us, the only name on which we can call. And the pagans would babble their names together and confuse one sibling for the other and end up just saying, whoever you are, God, and whatever name you want to go by and whichever God I might be praying to, Let me talk long enough to gain your attention. But our Father, the Father of us, is, as Jesus teaches, in heaven. With a name that is above every 
other name. And when you call on that name, he will respond. And you are invited along with Jesus to know God as Father, as the one who longs to have a relationship with you and who makes his name known. And I wonder today, have you called God Father for the first time? And perhaps you have called him Father for the first time, but it's time you come to know what that means more deeply. To be invited from a relational term and into a sense of purpose and duty and calling. To be invited not just to call him Father, but to join in his mission on the earth. Kara Sundlin writes about her first time calling her father, dad. You probably don't remember the first time you said the word dad. It may be something that's documented in one of those cute baby books, but likely not a big deal in your adult life. But when you grow up without a father, making the choice to find him and label him with a name worthy of your love is a major life event. She writes, The day I called my biological father, Bruce, Dad, for the first time, is a moment etched in my psyche, filed in the keep forever parts of my brain, along with my wedding day and the births of my children. You see, Kara Sundland was the love child of the sitting governor of Rhode Island, which meant that she had seen lots of pictures of her, quote, dad, before finally welcoming him into her life. It was one Father's Day, a year after the two had actually met, that she decided for the first time that he was worthy of being called Dad. And as she writes, she set out to the local mall to pick up a gift to give him. She settled on a mahogany memory box. She said, I knew my father loved to save things, and I thought it would be a perfect safety deposit box for all of our future mementos. I went to Things Remembered, a store to engrave a metal plaque on it. I had them put three simple letters, D-A-D, in all caps, and the date underneath it. A year before, I'd barely even known my dad, she writes. And so I gave him only a generic Father's Day card that meant almost nothing. But this time I decided to give him his Father's Day gift in person. When I handed him the heavy gift to open, he ripped the wrapping paper off and removed the glossy mahogany box from the packaging. I was touched at how he ran his fingers over the plaque, tracing the letters. He looked at me and said, This is beautiful, Kara. I told him it's a memory box for special things, like my Father's Day cards. He said, Very nice, very, very nice seemingly a little bit unsure of exactly what to say. He was a man who wasn't very used to showing his feelings, and it seemed to force the issue at every turn with this gift. And after a few exchanges of words, she finally got up the courage to look at him and say, I'm glad you like it, Dad. She says, I felt my face grow warm. We hugged, and I could feel his gratitude in my own heart. Even though he didn't say much, I watched his eyes widen, looking at my gift, staring at that little word 
on the top. Dad. Kara expresses beautifully what is also true of the Christian journey. That to find God and to appropriately label him with a name worthy of your love, to call and to claim him as father, is a major life event. One that is etched in your memory and filed under things I can never forget. And I don't know if you have ever called God father with sincerity and purpose, but today could be that day. Today could be the day that we see Jesus for who he is as the Savior and Messiah sent as God's Son to rescue and to redeem the world and who invites you to know him personally and through him to know God as Father. And perhaps you've known God as Father for a long time and you've had the great privilege and blessing to have been introduced to your heavenly Father at a very young age. The calling is the same, to bow with Jesus and to pray to God this powerful prayer that invites us into Jesus' purpose and Jesus' life and Jesus' mission over and above our own. And that when the world comes calling and encourages you and tempts you to make your own name great, you join Jesus in saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, May you lift up your name, even in me. Join me as we make that our prayer even today. Our Father, Father of us, O God, we pray that you would be known by all those who hear as Lord and Savior and Father. We pray your name would be made great through us. In Jesus' name, amen.